I'm uh, Mary Wood with the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's Points of View program. We're in the Herbst Theater. We're in the Herbst Theater of the Veterans Building in San Francisco. This is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2011. Our Points of View lecture series, along with the Meet the Artist interviews, other pre-performance programming are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil and administered by Adult Education Coordinator Cecilia Beam. These lectures and interviews are recorded for podcasting. I encourage you to go to the ballet's website, sfballet.org, where you'll find a great variety of programming, including the company blog, Studio 455. This welcome goes to those listening by podcast as well as to those of you who are here. And I'd like to extend a special welcome to the members of the Friends of San Francisco Ballet who are joining us tonight. Each year we set aside one evening to thank you for your generous support of San Francisco Ballet. Your support plays an integral role in maintaining the ballet's stature as one of the world's leading companies. So we're very glad you're with us tonight and we thank you for your support. <laughs> the company is well into this year's run of the San Francisco Ballet premiere of a new production of Coppelia. I hope those of you who have seen it enjoyed it as much as I did. And those, yeah. And those of you who have yet to see it this week, you're in for pure delight. Every year for the past several years, we've been privileged to host a visiting scholar, renowned in the ballet world as an authority in some aspect of our art. So now it's my pleasure to be introducing our 2011 visiting scholar, Doug Fullington. The breadth and diversity of his interests and activities is fully and truly astonishing. Mr. Fullington received his bachelor degrees in music and music history, as well as a Juris Doctor from the University of Washington in Seattle, where he has since taught undergraduate and graduate music history and performance courses. Mr. Fullington has had a long association with Pacific Northwest Ballet, and has served in many roles there, including executive assistant to artistic directors Kent Stoll and Francia Russell from 1997 to 2000, where his work at that time included research and writing for that company's redesigned production of Balanchine's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And he did extensive research of the music of Jerome Kern for Kent Stoll's full-length ballet, Silver Lining. At Pacific Northwest Ballet, he currently holds the positions of Education Programs Manager and Assistant to the Artistic Director, and is responsible for developing audience education programs and overseeing the company's outreach programs, among other duties. As a dance historian, Mr. Fullington is a fluent reader of Stepanov Notation, a classical ballet notation system developed in Russia and used in the Imperial Theaters. Mr. Fullington has recently been appointed by the George Balanchine Foundation as a principal researcher for the Foundation's Popular Balanchine Project, in which the choreographer's Broadway and film works will be explored and possibly revived. And in his spare time, Mr. Fullington is the founder and artistic director of the Tudor Choir, a professional vocal ensemble established in 1993 and connected with St. Mark's Episcopal Cathedral in Seattle. So now I'm very pleased to welcome San Francisco Ballet's visiting scholar, Doug Fullington. Thank you very much, Mary. It's nice to see all of you here. Uh, I hope you're as excited as I am, and I'm sure you are, to see 
this new production of George Balanchine's Coppelia. And it's a particular pleasure to be here because I'm from Pacific Northwest Ballet and we have co-produced the production with San Francisco Ballet. And I know it was uh, wonderful for Peter Bowl to receive the ascent of Helgi Thomason to work on this production together. And I think it, it's a wonderful thing for San Francisco Ballet to have Coppelia in its repertory, particularly George Balanchine's production, because of course Helgi was Balanchine's first prance in 1974, and it is a wonderful role. It's a role that Balanchine extended and augmented because of Helgi, and uh, that's something to be uh, really excited about, and I'm sure those of you who have already seen the production uh, realize uh, what a beautiful production of Coppelia it is. What I'd like to do tonight is take us through the history of Coppelia. As with any 19th century ballet that's come down through the years, Coppelia has undergone various revisions and been seen in many, many productions. So I'd like to take us through the variety of those and uh, help us along with some slides, some historic slides, and I'll let those guide me as we go through our history. And it'll take us from the beginnings of the ballet in 1870 right up until now, until tonight's performance that you'll see in the War Memorial Opera House. And I'll leave some time at the end as well for questions. So please do uh, think of some questions. If they come up, uh, hang on to them at the end. I love to answer questions, and I'll do my very best. So I will be certain to leave some time for that. But we can get started with the man you see on the screen here, who is Leo Delibes, the French composer of the score of Coppelia. He composed several ballets. Coppelia is the best known, but Sylvia, I think, comes in a very close second. And you're also so fortunate, and I was realizing this last night when I was speaking with someone at the performance, that, of course, you have Coppelia or Sylvia in your repertory as well in a wonderful production by Mark Morris. So you're doing quite well with Delib here at San Francisco Ballet. And it's something Balanchine would be very happy about because along with Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky, Balanchine felt that Delib was among the top three of ballet composers. So Delib is our constant tonight as we talk about all of these different productions of Coppelia, of course, being the composer. Uh, Coppelia was composed fairly early in Delib's ballet career. He had uh, collaborated with uh, Ludwig Minkus on the ballet La Source. Uh, Minkus was the veteran and Delib was the protege who was given a chance, but it turned out that Delib's music was considered superior to Minkus's music. And so uh, a commission for Coppelia followed in 1870, and uh, Delib had great success with it. And of course, many of the tunes are so familiar to us today. Now I'm going to get moving on the slides here and just show you a picture of Marius Pedipa here because it will be uh, Pedipa's production of Coppelia that is the one that has become the standard uh, by which most modern Coppelia performances, productions are based. And we'll get to the Russian productions of Coppelia. And of course, then we're very interested in this man here, George Balanchine, who remembered Coppelia from his youth in Russia and St. Petersburg and in 1974 decided to create a new production for New York City Ballet. He collaborated with his colleague, Alexandra Danilova. Together they shared their memories and put together this new wonderful production that you'll be seeing tonight. But let's go back to 1870. We're in Paris. We're right at the end of what we know as the Romantic Era in ballet, which began in the 1820s and produced such great ballets as La Sylphide, Giselle, of course, which is considered the ultimate achievement of the Romantic era in 1841. Le Corsair, Paquita are among other Romantic ballets. And Coppelia really just sneaks in right at the tail end. Uh, ballet was about to sort of go under, so to speak, in Paris. Uh, the Franco-Prussian War was about to start. Many artists had left for Russia because the Tsar was very interested in ballet and was willing to put a lot of money into it. So like many other artists, Marius Pedipa had left France and was working full-time in St. Petersburg. So Paris had lost a lot of its artists, but not all of them. And Coppelia was produced right at the end of the Romantic era. Its focus is on uh, peasant country life, which was one of the uh, interests in the Romantic era. The supernatural also was of great interest. And we know with Giselle, we have the willies, the vampire-like women out to get men in the second act. You've already seen this 
this season here at San Francisco Ballet. We have a hint of the supernatural in Coppelia because, of course, Dr. Coppelius believes that he can transfer Francis' solo into that of his inanimate puppet Coppelia and thereby bring her to life. Of course, we know that it's Swanilda playing a joke, but nonetheless, that element is there and that fulfills one of the prerequisites for a good Romantic era plot. These are photos of the first Swanilda. She was just 16 years old, and her name was Giuseppina Bozzacchi. She was Italian, and the management of the Paris Opera felt they didn't have someone quite right for the role, so they started looking around in the schools, and they found this 15-year-old girl. She was then 15 when the rehearsal started, and they cast her as Swanilda, and she created a real sensation. And we see her here in her various costumes for the first and second and third act of the ballet. She had a great success, but unfortunately, the ballet only ran for 17 performances before Paris was under siege. And during the siege, she contracted smallpox, and she died on the morning of her 17th birthday. So although Coppelia is our great comedy, the circumstances around the premiere are actually quite sad. Uh, the, nonetheless, the ballet being a great success. The original choreographer as well, Arthur San Leon, had a great success. He also passed away shortly after the ballet was first premiered. So not the best circumstances and not the best start for Coppelia, but nonetheless, it did stay in the repertory at Paris Opera, and it very soon uh, reached 500 performances and was for many years the most often performed and the most popular ballet in the repertory. I have another uh, slide here of some caricatures of the original interpreters. On the left, you see Bozaki as Swanilda. And on the right, you see the first Franz. Now, the first Franz was not a man, but was a woman. Uh, much of the audience at this time at Paris Opera was a male audience. Many of them were members of the Jockey Club, and the Jockey Club was not interested in seeing men on stage. They wanted to see women. So women played the men's roles as well. So uh, the first Franz was a woman, and you see a caricature of her there on the right. Much to the happiness of the jockey club. Uh, this is Carlotta Zambelli, an Italian uh, dancer who also performed the, the role of Swanilda. And I just want to show this to, to give a different look. The, as I said, the ballet stayed in the repertory regularly for many, many performances and saw many leading ballerinas and guest ballerinas come through, and they would choose to dance this role, of course, because of its popularity. They wanted to dance a popular work, and they also wanted to prove themselves to the Parisian audience. So here is Zambelli as Swanilda in a later production of Coppelia in Paris. Now, even though the ballet stayed in the repertory in Paris, for many years and for so many performances, the rest of the West knows Coppelia through its Russian productions, which is the case with so many 19th century ballets, whether they are Russian in origin or French in origin, because the Russians were very, very interested in all things French, and they would keep a close eye on what was going on in Paris. As soon as a ballet premiered there that had any success, it was immediately imported to Russia. Giselle was immediately imported to St. Petersburg the year after its premiere. It premiered in 1841, and immediately a rehearsal score was prepared to transfer the ballet to St. Petersburg in 1842. Now, Coppelia, as we know, premiered in 1870. It took two years, but in 1872, the ballet premiered in a new production in Moscow. And then in 1884, Marius Petipa himself produced a version for St. Petersburg, and it is this version uh, in subsequent restagings that informs nearly every production that we see in the West outside of Paris, including Balanchine's production. This is Anna Pavlova in costume for Swanilda, and I want to show you, if I can, it's a little hard to see on this slide, but you'll see it in others, that her tutu, I'll use my green light here, has these lines on it. And I don't know the significance of these. There are four lines here outlining the uh, top layer on the tutu, but we'll see that in many subsequent slides of different Swanilda costumes. And if anyone knows the significance of these, I'd love to know, but it seems to be a characteristic trait of the Swanilda costume. And now I have for you a succession of slides just showing different ballerinas in Russia in the role of Swanilda. Here we have Swanilda in the third act in her wedding costume, 
And then we have her in her first act costume, again with her lines. She's sort of stomping her foot and showing a little bit of feistiness, which of course is a characteristic of any good swan Ilda. This is Vera Trefilova. She was one of Diaghilev's auroras when he brought the Sleeping Beauty to London in 1921. She danced at many soubrette roles, including Swan Ilda. And again, we see the lines on the dress here. Very typical Victorian uh, hairstyle here. They'd often wear their own jewelry as well. Another Swanilda, again the lines on the dress here in a stool and then showing a tendu front here. I love looking at these because we really get a sense of how the arms and legs were used. Even though these are still photos, we get a sense of what the aesthetic of the time was and I find it really interesting to watch. We see that turnout in her left leg, foot not pointed so great, but at the same time we, we can tell what the aesthetic they're going for is. Uh, costume for uh, Swanilda as the doll in the second act. We see the, the feet in first position here and a little more standard position here. Now this is the Scottish dance that Swanilda dances in act two of Coppelia and one distinguishing feature of this ballet are its many national dances. Now there may have been national dances in earlier ballets but Coppelia is thought of as the first ballet to incorporate so many. Delib wrote a Hungarian mazurka and a Polish Shardos for the first act. And then in the second act, Swanilda dances a Spanish bolero and a Scottish jig for Dr. Coppelius. And here she's wearing her tartan for the jig. And uh, you'll see a, a similar tartan around your Swanilda tonight. Here is a Franz of the time, typical costume for Franz in boots. This is Yulia Sedova as Prayer in the third act. I love this one. Uh, typical tutu, just coming a few inches above the knee, decorated with some flowers, and the hands in the prayer position. Uh, one of the character dancers in the first act, also in her boots, skirt, and apron. Now, Coppelia wasn't limited to Russia or France, of course. This is a photo from the first English production uh, in 1906, and we see here the second act with Swanilda and Dr. Coppelius with his book of spells on the floor. Again, a scene similar to what you'll see tonight in the Balanchine production. It's wonderful to see these similarities, you know, a hundred years on through these slides. Anna Pavlova not only danced Swanilda in Russia, but she took the production or elements, uh, parts of it, on her worldwide tours. And again, you see the lines on the tutu for the Swanilda costume. Very characteristic headdress for uh, first couple decades of the 20th century there on Pavlova and her headband. All right, how did Coppelia come out of Russia to the West. Of course, there are the traditional ways of ballet being handed down orally from generation to generation. One dancer who has danced the role teaches another. That's still common today. It's the most common way for a ballet to be passed down. A dancer can not only teach another dancer's steps, but can communicate to that dancer what the choreographer or dancer from another generation told him or told her, and that can be passed on to another generation. But from Russia, we had another way that ballets were handed down, and it was through dance notation. In the early 1890s in St. Petersburg, a dancer with a company there named Vladimir Stepanov asked for a leave of absence from the management of the theater to go to Paris and to study anatomy. And there he developed a dance notation system based on the Western musical notation system. And that system has since become known as the Stepanov dance notation system. So Vladimir Stepanov returned to St. Petersburg. He had to appear before a panel of dancers and staff, including Petipa, and get permission to begin notating the repertory of the ballet company and also to teach the system in the school. And he received permission for both of these endeavors. And over a period of about 15 years, nearly 50 ballets and opera ballets were notated in the Stepanov system in varying degrees of completeness. The earliest versions are really works of art in themselves. They're written in calligraphy pen and ink. They're very beautifully done. 
they include musical scores along with the choreographic notation. By the time we get 15 years on, the notations are a little more practical, a little more like memory aids. They're in pencil. They're not always complete, but they still document in a relatively thorough way the ballets of the time. Now, unfortunately, Stepanov died on his 30th birthday from tuberculosis. A uh, lot of death in this story, I apologize. And the system was taken over by Alexander Gorsky, who was then transferred to the Bolshoi in 1900. And so the bulk of the work fell to this man in the drawing here, whose name was Nicholas Sergeyev. Now, Sergeyev was a dancer, a soloist with the company, and he shortly thereafter became a ballet master. And many of the notations are in his hand and in the hand of a couple of his assistants. Now, when the Russian Revolution came, uh, of course, many were trying to leave Russia. They just, the living situation was so volatile. There was no work, there was no food. Many of them fled to the West, including Sergeyev. He was quite sharp, though, because he knew he would have to make a living somehow in the West. Uh, he didn't speak English. He would only learn a very little, a very small amount of it. He needed a way to communicate and to make a living. So he took with him all of the notations and a number of musical scores as well in a number of boxes. And off he went to the West, and he began staging ballets from the St. Petersburg Repertory to companies in various Western cities, including Paris. He staged Giselle there in 1924. He then spent a number of years in Riga in Latvia, where he staged works. And then he ended up in England in the early 1930s, where he met a woman named Nanette de Valois, who was in charge of a small company called the Vic Wells Company. And she knew that she wanted a classical foundation for her, her ballet company, and she asked him to stage some ballets. And he staged five for her, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, Nutcracker, Giselle, and Coppelia. This company would eventually become the Sadler's Wells Ballet, and then after World War II was named by the Queen as the Royal Ballet. So it is Sergeyev's stagings that really became the foundation, the classical foundation for the Royal Ballet, and Coppelia was one of them. This is an example of Stepanov notation. It takes all kinds of different forms, but this is a notation that is made of a production of the ballet La Bayadere, which was done in December of 1900, supervised by Petipah, and Sergeyev was the stager. And I'll just point out a couple things here for you. I know it's a little small on the screen, but up here we have the indication that this is uh, number seven out of a variety of musical and dance numbers. And here we have a ground plan showing us where dancers are on stage, the women are in open circles, and the men are the closed circles. We show that the timing is in 4-4. Four, four. And we, you see here that you have a two-line staff, a three-line staff, and a four-line staff. And then that's repeated down below. The two-line staff would include movements for the head and the torso. The three-line staff would include movements for arms, and the four-line staff for legs. Now here we just have some rubrics that tell, the dance, tell us that the dancers are sta standing in this particular formation. And then we have a few steps here, and then we have another group, and then we get some dance steps here. And you can see there are no notations for the head and torso, nothing for the arms, but just the legs and feet. Stems up are the left leg, stems down are the right leg. But you can see that it moves in time, one and two and three, four and one and, and so forth. So this is how the notation system looks. This is a very tidy example. Uh, Sergeyev was not so tidy about five years later. Coppelia is one of the less tidy of the notations. Still readable, but nothing like this. He, he didn't have as much time, I suppose. Greater responsibilities at work. But I wanted to show you an example of what this notation system looks like. It gives a lot of information, but at the same time, it doesn't give complete information. So anyone working with this notation now has some editorial decisions to make, but at least can be assured that they have a pretty solid basis of what was going on back in the day. I have some slides now of some English productions of Coppelia. Uh, there were a variety, not just of the Vic Wells, Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet, but Sergeyev worked for some other companies, including a company called the International Ballet, run by a woman named Mona Inglesby. 
So here are some scenes from Coppelia. This is the first act, the dance with the ear of wheat. Now, for those of you uh, not familiar with the ballet or just getting familiar with it, there was a tradition that's uh, played out in the ballet in which a prospective uh, bride can shake the ear of wheat and it should tell her the name of her true love. I don't know where this tradition came from. But of course, there's poor Swanelda shaking away, and it's not saying anything to her. She's very disappointed, and she's sure that Franz is false. Now, he, he doesn't give any credence to these, uh, to these superstitions, but uh, we do get a beautiful dance out of it. So here is Swanilda with Franz, accompanied by her eight friends. You can see they have their hands to the ear because they're all shaking away, trying to hear what the wheat's going to tell them. And you'll see this in tonight's production. The uh, mayor of the city gives each of the friends in Swanilda the, uh, the wheat to shake. And we have this beautiful potida accompanied by the friends. And then just some more slides here of uh, Franz and Swanhilda on the left. Swanilda dressed as the doll. You see her uh, robotic-like position held by Dr. Coppelius. These are slides from the 30s and 40s. You can see, see, see the look of the times in the, the uh, way the women wear their hair and in how the makeup is styled and so forth. And some more photos here of Swanilda's and Franz's. Demonstration. I like this photo. It reminds me of the way we try to bring pa patrons close to ballet today within studio rehearsals and so forth. Franz, very big arms there on those, that costume, but again, another costume of the time. Now, this is Margot Fontaine. She looks a little bit like Bo Peep to me, but she's in a Swanilda costume. She sure is beautiful, I think, such beautiful eyes. But there's Mar a young Margot Fontaine in uh, Coppelia. Now, another company that acquired the Sergei of staging in London was the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Now, I'm sure many of you, all of you are familiar with the famous Ballet Russe, which is, is existed from 1909 to 1929, led by the famous impresario Serge Diaghilev. He had such a wonderful knack of pulling together great artists and encouraging and developing artistry. He worked with great choreographers, Nijinska, Messine, and Fokin and uh, Nijinsky and Balanchine, who worked with great designers, uh, Picasso, Coco Chanel, Matisse, wonderful composers Prokofiev, Stravinsky, and many, many others. Diaghilev died suddenly in 1929, and there really was nobody to fill those shoes. So the company folded, and many, many artists were out of work. But a few really wonderful administrators, if you will, took the initiative to form uh, ballet Russe companies, and they were, they were very savvy. They knew if Ballet Russe was in the title that they would sell. And one of these companies was the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And in 1938, this company was performing in London, and they acquired Nikolai Sergeyev's staging of Coppelia, of course, based on the Stepan of Notations as, as written down in St. Petersburg, so what is thought to be a, quite an accurate a reproduction of the production that, that excuse me, Petipa was responsible for all the way back to 1884. Here we see the lead ballerina in that performance, in that original performance, Alexandra Danilova, in the center here, surrounded by her friends. Now, Danilova was born around 1904. She was a uh, contemporary of George Balanchine. They went to school together. They trained together in the Imperial Ballet. They performed as children in many of the Petipa ballets and other ballets of the time. Uh, she was the common-law wife of Balanchine, and uh, eventually she would, after her retirement, would come to be a faculty member at his School of American Ballet in New York City. Here's another picture of Danilova in the third act. Swanilda was one of her signature roles. She had a very bubbly, sort of a champagne personality. And uh, it was a wonderful role for her to display her comedic talents and also her wonderful mastery of classical technique. It really is a truly 19th century ballerina role because in the 19th century, ballerinas were expected to be not just great classical dancers, but also great character dancers. They were expected to be wonderful at folk dancing as well as dancing on point. And they were expected to be wonderful actresses with a wonderful command of pantomime. 
And as you'll see tonight, the role of Swan Nilda requires all of these. It requires wonderful classical dancing, particularly in the first act and in the third act, character dancing, when the ballerina in the second act has to dance like a doll with stiff limbs. She has to dance her Spanish bolero. She has to dance her Scottish jig. And she also has to communicate with the audience by pantomime. And you'll see the very first thing that Swanilda does when she comes out of her house in act one, the very first thing she does is not dance, but introduces herself to us and explains to us about the doll Coppelia, explains to us about Franz, and then tells us that uh, what about me? I like to dance. And then she gets started. So she uh, embodies all of the elements of a 19th century ballerina, the classical, the character, and the pantomime. And this suited Danila very well. And as I said, Swanilda was one of her signature roles. She wrote in her memoirs that she ran into Balanchine one day in, uh, at Lincoln Center on the plaza. And he said to her, do you remember Coppelia? And she said, well, yes, of course. And he said, well, I'm thinking about uh, producing it for New York City Ballet. Would you help me? And she said, yes, of course. And he turned and off he went. And she didn't think much more about it. But two weeks later, she ran into him in the same place. And he said, well, uh, about that Coppelia, we're starting rehearsals. I don't know if it was today or tomorrow, but it was right away. And oh, she said, so that's how they got started. Balanchine decided that the company needed another full-length work. And when he revived ballets that he remembered from his childhood, he would gravitate toward the ballets that he felt were suitable for families, for children and adults. He revived, of course, Nutcracker. He revived Harlequinade, which is so little known but has brilliant dancing for children in it. It's a wonderful and fun story. He then revived Coppelia in 1974. And Oh, this is another, uh, this is Dr. Coppelius from the Monte, uh, Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo production. And then now we go to some wonderful photos that Martha Swope took during the creation of the Balanchine Coppelia for its 1974 premiere. And we have Balanchine here on the left sitting with Alexandra Danilova, and that's John Terrace on the right. And they are watching uh, the rehearsals. Here is Balanchine and Danilova working with Patricia McBride. Patricia McBride was the original Swanilda in 1974. And here, this woman here was your stager for this Coppelia, Judith Fugate. She was a friend in the original 1974 production, and even more so, she was the friend who finds the key. So when you see the friend find the Dr. Coppelius's key tonight, that was Judith's role in the 1974 production. Here now is Danilova working with Patricia McBride and, of course, Helgi Thomason. On one of the potters, you see Danilova demonstrating partnering. Danilova was very glamorous. She always had on lots of jewelry. She dressed like a ballerina. She had her scarves tucked in. Uh, always the ballerina, right? Uh, all the way through her career, even in this teaching phase. Another photo of Helgi with Patty McBride. Uh, Balanchine sitting with Danilova, and then on their Balanchine's right, Lincoln Kirstein, who, of course, with Balanchine, founded New York City Ballet in 1948 and was so integral to the development of ballet in the U.S. So quite a, quite a historic photo here. And then a wide shot of this same scene. You can see everyone sitting around in the studio. It's really just like today when you have a run-through of a full length in your studio and everyone's there. And uh, the creators and the supervisors are sitting in front, giving their corrections and their coaching. I love these photos. Very generous of Martha Swope to share them with us. Now, this brings us to our own production of Coppelia that you will see tonight. Uh, Peter Bowl decided that he would like to present Coppelia in Balanchine's version at Pacific Northwest Ballet. Franz was one of his favorite roles. He really enjoyed the ballet very much and decided that it would be best to try to redesign the work. Uh, and I agreed, saying that uh, it will distinguish the production to have new designs. Of course, uh, Ruben Ter Arutunian was the first designer in 1974 for the Balanchine production. But uh, as Pacific Northwest Ballet had done with the Midsummer Night's Dream, the redesign had contributed so much to the uniqueness of the production. 
And so Rico Chiarelli, who we see here on the left, and he uh, for a short while was your technical director and was down the last couple weeks to light this Coppelia here at San Francisco Ballet, he suggested working with a designer named Roberta Guidi de Bagno. Roberta is Italian, she lives in Rome, Enrico had worked with her on a production of Ronald Hines' Merry Widow, which she had beautifully designed, both scenery and costumes. And so Peter commissioned Roberta to redesign the scenery and the costumes for Balanchine's Coppelia. So she began her research process, of course, watching videos of the Balanchine so she could get a good idea of where things needed to go on stage, where people were uh, entering the stage and exiting, and sort of the scale of the production. Her intent was to not replicate Ter Arutunian's designs, but to replicate how the stage was set up, of course, so it would complement and work with the Balanchine choreography. And of course, this was a requirement of the Balanchine Trust in giving permission for this redesign. So we see here Rico working with Roberta uh, in, uh, back at home in the shop at Pacific Northwest Ballet. Uh, I'm going to do a little comparison now of the designs of earlier productions with what Roberta has developed for uh, the production here that you'll see tonight. Uh, this is a model for Act One of Coppelia from 1875, so a few years after that premiere, and you can see this is the town square. We have Swanilda's house in the middle, very important because she'll, she'll enter and exit from there. And here we have Dr. Coppelius's house and his famous balcony, and on it you can see the outline of the doll Coppelia reading her book. And then different avenues for corps de ballet to enter and exit the stage. And a nice, uh, nice foliage framing the stage here. Now here is Roberta's drawing for Act One. We have Swanilda's house. <clears throat> little more fanciful of the design here, but we have the same elements, Swanilda's house, Coppelius's house with the balcony, and the door to come in and out, and different ways for the corps de ballet to enter and exit the stage. Here is a little bit of uh, some photos of the work process <clears throat> at the studios in Seattle. This is the workroom in which, in which the foliage was designed. Uh, Roberta's a big fan of wisteria, uh, every production I've seen by Roberta has wisteria in it somehow. No matter where it takes place, there's the wisteria. It's very adaptable. She has wisteria growing outside of her apartment in Rome, which she just loves. So she loves to work the wisteria in, and it really does uh, suit very beautifully here. So we see the outlines of the wisteria here on the floor of the shop. Here is another element of the design that went into Act One. Dr. Coppelius's house has some wonderful gargoyles sitting atop the corners. And these were constructed uh, by our crew. And then we see a picture. The wisteria is a little dark. You'll see it better lit tonight. But you'll see how the whole is framed by wisteria up here. And again, you'll see them better tonight are the gargoyles at the top of Dr. Coppelius's house. And there we have Swanilda's house as well. Really, I think, a very beautiful design. Here's the design from 1875 for Act Two for Dr. Coppelius's studio, uh, pretty mammoth studio. Looks smaller from the outside, gets really big once you get inside. Some important elements here are the window. This is the window that Franz will climb in. Of course, the girls had the good sense to go in by the door, but Franz, being the man, has to go in by the ladder through the window. So this is where he, he will come up. Here we see the alcove in which the doll is kept, and there are curtains that can be drawn to hide Swanilda as she changes into the costume of the doll. Over here, eventually, there will be a table and chairs where Dr. Coppelius plies Franz with alcohol to put him in a stupor so he can transfer, magically transfer Franz's solo into the doll. And here's Roberta's design for the second act. The important window, of course, the alcove with the curtain, the chair. The chair is made of books. I think it's quite creative. The chair and the, uh, the pictures here. And you can see all of Dr. Coppelius's different uh, dolls. You can see the mannequins and his various books of spells and ideas. 
Here's a close-up of the dolls that we see just at the top of the design here and how they were built. Now that brings us to Act 3. Act 3 is, is very unique in Coppelia, and it's, uh, it's, it's met with mixed reviews, I think even today, to be honest, as well as when it was first produced. The story itself really ends at the end of Act 2. We know that Franz and Swanhilde are reunited and reconciled and that they will be married. Dr. Coppelius has sadly found out that his doll is not alive, that it was simply Swanhilde impersonating her. So the story is fairly well wrapped up, but we come to Act 3, and as was announced in Act 1, and you'll see it on banners brought in by some of the village boys, that the town is celebrating a new bell. And a bell, of course, would be very important for a town at that time. Not everyone's going to be running around with a watch on. But the bell, of course, is uh, tolling the hours and telling you what time of day it is, when it's time to go to lunch, when it's time to go to work, when it's time to go to church, uh, and when it's time to go to bed. And so the new bell is very important, and the mayor has announced that anyone getting married on the day of the Festival of the Bells will receive a dowry from the town. So good civic incentive to get married, I guess, back then. So um, here we have the bell from 1870. You can see it's, it's put on sort of a cart, a float, really, with wheels here. And then there follow a number of divertisements, a number of entertaining dances that outline the hours of the day. We begin with a waltz. It's called the Waltz of the Golden Hours, really just to introduce the entire festival. And after that follow solos. We have dawn, of course, for the morning. The bell would ring in the morning to signal that it's time to get up. Uh, that is followed by prayer, uh, which would be an important part of the life of any old town back. Uh, there's not a particular time set for, for Coppelia. I don't know if it's a Middle Ages time or, or later than that, but the, uh, the church, probably where the bell would be hung, would be very important to the life of the town. After that comes a dance for work, or in this production it's called spinner, which was one uh, type of work. Of course, everyone would be going to work, whether it's out in the field or textile work or some kind of work important to contributing to the town. After that was a dance for marriage, now, it's interesting that in the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo production, uh, marriage wasn't referred to. Uh, this dance was simply called Follies, and Balanchine named it uh, Jesterettes. He has four women called Jesterettes. He didn't use the term marriage, and I don't know why, except I would imagine that after five of them, he might have been tired of it at age 70. He did tell Danila that he was done with marriage. <laughs> so there's no marriage dance in Balanchine's, but of course the music is used. After that, we have a really interesting and unusual dance called Discord and War. And you will see the stage darkens, everybody leaves, and on come the soldiers, men and women, in uh, the Discord and War romp, as it's been called by some reviewers of the Balanchine production. And this is followed by Peace. And Peace in the original production was danced by a soloist because, of course, there was no pas de deux for Franz and Swanilda because Franz was danced by a woman. But in the Russian productions, Franz was danced by a man, and the piece music was used as a potida, and Balanchine also used the piece music as the piece potida for Swanilda and Franz. He also added uh, some music from Delib's ballet, Sylvia. He added a variation for the man, which he had choreographed for his Sylvia potida, and he added music for a coda, so that Swanilda and Franz had a real, really wonderful, fast bravura dance before the final ensemble dance, the gallop, which would close the ballet. Balanchine also added a dance for Franz in the first act to music from Delib's ballet, La Source. That was the ballet he had shared with Minkus. And again, he had a wonderful dancer in Helgi in which to add these really great dances for France. So we have a greater balance of the dancing between the lead man and the lead woman. The reviewer Arlene Croce says that men are always suing for equal time in 19th century full-length ballets, but Balanchine didn't make that happen because he provided the wonderful dances already, so that's great. 
A few more slides here, just showing some details of the work. There's some wonderful pillars and artwork in Act Three, all hand-painted. You'll see them when the curtain goes up tonight, very beautiful. And now just a few costume designs and a little bit of comparison with early costumes. And I hope that these are uh, in enough detail for you to see. This is a design for Swanelda in Act One by Roberta Guidi de Bagno. And this is the Franz costume. Helgi had a lot of say about the Franz costume and helped to make sure that the colors would show and contrast well on the stage. You'll see he's in browns and greens here with a vest and a shirt. This is Dr. Coppelius and his coat. The coat's made to look like it's a little bit worn and a little bit cobwebby, so see if that translates to your eye tonight on stage. And then some uh, early costumes for Coppelia. Dr. Coppelius on the left, again with the long coat, and Franz on the right. Uh, again, not, not exactly the same as what we see today. We do see some of those big sleeves that we got in the English productions from the 30s and 40s, both in boots. Dr. Coppelius has some dolls, some wonderful dolls in his workshop, and one of them is an astrologer doll, and this is Roberta's design for that. It's really a wonderful jacket that has stars on it, and the way the stars are connected, they're not completely sewn down, so they move. When the doll moves, the stars move too, so there's a nice almost three-dimensional quality to how those stars are laid onto the costume. Very beautiful. In fact, there's a very nice production uh, or studio shot of the dolls with Swanelda in your encore program that you'll see tonight. This is the female in Discord and War. Uh, these types of dresses, short in the front and long in the back, were an aspect of Balanchine's 1974 production for the solo women in Act Three and for Discord and War. And Roberta kept this particular design because she felt it complemented, of course, his choreography very well. And then a couple uh, more designs from the original or an early production. This is Dawn on the left, also just very lightweight. And then uh, one of the Corps de Ballet dancers from the Waltz of the Golden Hours on the right. So just a little bit of contrast uh, with the costumes that you'll see tonight. However, skirt length is about the same, just right around the knee, and a bodice and free arms. So although we're so many years out from that original, there are still some aesthetic considerations that, that we hold to in, in ballet that were the same as those in the 19th century. That's it for my slides. I want to say a little bit more about Act Three and about the Balanchine production. He has, uh, to my mind, uh, very rightly kept uh, nearly all of these dances in Act Three. Interestingly enough, in Paris in 1870, there were those that felt that Act Three was very superfluous to the ballet because it didn't deal directly with the plot. And little by little, dances were eliminated to the point that Act Three was cut out altogether. And it is still true today that in the Paris Opera production of Coppelia, which is in a reproduction by Pierre Lacotte, that there is no third act. We just have the first and the second act. The third act did hang on in a shortened form in the Russian productions, but when Balanchine came to produce the ballet in 1974, he completely re-choreographed the third act. The first and second act uh, are based on Danilova and Balanchine's memories of their childhood production in St. Petersburg in the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo production with Balanchine then coming in and Danilova said would, he would fill in gaps he re-choreographed the Mazurka and the Shardosh and, and updated, if you will, to meet uh, more current aesthetics, some of the choreography. But Balanchine completely made, uh, made a completely new third act and included all of these wonderful divertissements. He was always very respectful of a score when he was reviving a 19th century ballet. He was not averse to providing new choreography, but he would respect the score, and the aesthetic of the ballet, he would respect the story and uh, always stayed very true to that, whether it be Nutcracker or his Harlequinade or here Coppelia. One thing that he did that was so unique was create a corps de ballet out of children for the third act. I think it was a real stroke of genius. So as we're moving through the opening dance of the third act in which all of the different dancers in the divertissement will be, are introduced, you will eventually see 24 little girls from your school run on stage and begin to dance. And it really is some of the most beautiful choreography for children that I've seen and some of the most complex. 
They not only danced the Waltz of the Golden Hours uh, with one of the soloists from the company, but they also accompany Don and Prayer and Spinner and the Jesterettes, and then they make a wonderful reappearance in the coda. So they have a very large role in the third act, and Balanchine treated children like he treated adults. He would give them choreography that suited their technique and played to their strengths. He would take into account their technique level and their size, and he expects a lot of them. They don't have simple counts. They have the same kind of counts that adult dancers would have. So I don't think that he was capitalizing on the cuteness factor, although they are adorable, but he was giving them real choreography that would challenge them and contribute to the ballet, and I think it was, it was just a wonderful thing, and you will be very proud of the students of San Francisco Ballet tonight, and I'm sure they're absolutely thrilled to be involved in what really is a historic production of the ballet. So we are about 10 minutes out from being done, and I would love to answer any questions that you might have or any com hear any comments you might like to make from those of you who have seen the ballet or seen other productions. What is the relationship of this to Tales of Hoffman? Well, the story of Coppelia was developed out of Hoffman's uh, Der Sandman, The Sandman, and it also was the, I believe, the inspiration for the first act of the opera Tales of Hoffman. The story in the Hoffman is, is a little bit more grotesque. It's a more violent story, and the creators of Coppelia toned down a lot of that in developing the story, very similar to the way that the Nutcracker story was uh, I want to say watered down, but that sounds like a bit of a negative, maybe made more palatable for audiences. The comedic aspects were focused on, uh, and of course, norms of the ballet were taken into account in developing the story. So it is loosely based on The Sandman by Hoffman. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you very much. Yes, this works. Um, I was very pleased to see Coppelia on Sunday afternoon. I think it's fabulous. You are in for a great treat, especially with your children. Do you know anything new who's dancing tonight? You know, I've not seen the casting, but Cecilia may know who's on tonight. I'd also be interested in how many casts of children there are, but uh, I can ask those questions after, but uh, does, does, I, I don't know who the leads are tonight. Usually the dancers don't read notation, and usually that's because um, a choreographer, most choreographers or ballet masters will have their own uh, personal style of writing down the ballet notes. Some of them use words, some of them use figures, and uh, other ways of remembering the choreography, and often in conjunction now with videotape, which is, can be so helpful. Uh, in the U.S., there's, there's far less use of standardized notation types than in Europe, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't have a tradition of it here, and two, it's quite expensive to have what we would call a choreologist on staff. But in Europe, two types of notation are regularly used. One is called Benish notation, and it is also based on the Western musical notation system. And another is Laban notation, which is a more of a, uh, has more geometric symbols, but both very thorough. Uh, so much more often used in Europe and less in the States. But generally, no, the dancers aren't involved in reading notation, they would rely on the choreographer or the ballet master to communicate to them what the steps are. I'm sure there's one down here in front. Yes, we co-produced this production of Coppelia, PNB, in San Francisco. And how much is going to be shared as far as the ballet is concerned? Is it going to produce them here? Is it going to be produced in the Washington area? Yes, it actually was 
first shown last June in Seattle. The production was built in Seattle, both the scenery and the costumes, but the staff, the production staffs from both shops, the scenic shop and the costume shop of San Francisco Ballet, periodically made trips to Seattle to help oversee the production and the building of the sets and costumes and to be sure that they would be suited to the War Memorial Opera House. Um, we also built a few more costumes for San Francisco Ballet dancers so that every dancer would be accommodated and that the costumes would fit just right. So things were built in Seattle, but uh, there was a lot of collaboration on the way along the way between both troops. So we uh, produced it first last year. Now it hits here in San Francisco, and we'll give it again in Seattle uh, next spring. Thank you. That is a good point, and, 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 and I had some discussion with people about that last night as well, that Dr. Coppelius takes his bow at the end of the second act because essentially his role is done, and he has had such a large role in the first two acts. He does have a very small role in the third act, and you are right, it does point up to the, uh, the relationship that the, the divertissement has with the rest of the story. It's much more a pure dance display we know what the ending of the story is. But I think we just have to take it on faith that it's an extension of sort of the happy ending of the story. And uh, we do get the wonderful dances by Balanchine. So, but your point is well taken. I cannot defend it. <laughs> Yes, I think that Balanchine was very inspired by Petipah. He didn't know him. Balanchine was born in 04, which was the year that Petipah quit working, and then Petipah died in 1910. And Balanchine didn't get into the school in St. Petersburg until he was nine in 1913. But he danced and learned many of Petipah's ballets as a student and as a young professional in St. Petersburg. And he often verbalized his debt to Petipah. I think that they were both what we might call formalist choreographers. They were very interested in the use of stage space and very interested in the different perspectives of the body as viewed by the audience. Uh, Petipah often gives you the same step uh, with the dancer facing different directions, and there's almost a rhetorical aspect to the way he would construct dances with his use of repetition. And Balanchine followed very much in that vein, even in his more neoclassical choreography, such as the Four Temperaments or Agon. We can still see vestiges of that sort of formalist construction. So I think that Balanchine was greatly inspired by Petipah. I think he agreed with Petipah's approach to choreography. He certainly extended the classical ballet vocabulary by adding to it many steps, and of course we refer to that as the neoclassical style, a new classicism, but he certainly did owe a debt to Petipah, and he really did readily acknowledge it. Time for one more? Uh, it's a sort of yes and no answer here. In a ballet like Coppelia, where there is so much acting and so much of uh, non-classical interpretation of movement and story, uh, there is leeway, I think, for a dancer's 
personality to come through, and in particular timing, say a pantomime, uh, facial expressions, and choices that can be made within the parameters of the choreography. Now that Balanchine is not with us and his ballets are controlled by the Balanchine Trust, the steps that the dancers do are those steps are set. So when Judith Fugate comes to stage steps, the dancers will all do the same steps, unless there might be a particular dance in which it was known that Balanchine gave an option for this or that, or if the man turns to the left or the right, there might be those small uh, exceptions made. So for the most part, the steps will be exactly what was set by Balanchine is remembered by Judith Fugate. But again, because we're dealing with a story ballet, I think you will see differences between leading dancers in the dynamic and in the way, the intensity with which they put over the particular uh, role. You, likewise with Dr. Coppelius. Uh, some will be a little bit uh, harder edged, some will create more sympathy uh, with the audience in act two. And the, the different Dr. Coppeliuses I've seen have all had a little bit of a, a different dynamic. So a, a little bit of a yes and no. I think it's one of the things that makes the ballet very interesting and enduring is the opportunity for personality. All right, I know I need to let you go to the theater. You've been wonderful. Thank you, and enjoy your production.